Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a noob and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. Ready to celebrate season two of the original series? Yes, except for the fact that I now need to duel my best friend to the death. Um, so I have to take care of that uh, after this recording. Okay, well, hopefully you'll be able to restrain yourself for long enough for, to, to, to complete a recording, and, and, and uh, hopefully no deaths will occur in the immediate aftermath. Well, this week, we are going to be, yes, kicking off Season 2, which means we are going to be dealing with a mock time. I suspect we might have a few things to talk about here. However, <laughs> as always, we're not doing it alone. So, um, welcome, Ellie. Hi, thank you so much for having me back to talk about what is my absolute favorite episode of any Star Trek. I've been hyping up this episode to Kev for the past year. I'm so excited that we are finally here to talk about it together. <laughs> well, it's good to tip your hand early. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, any longtime listeners will remember when I was on last time for Strange New Worlds, I did use that as a backdoor pilot <laughs> type of thing to talk about Amok Time quite a lot. So if you've heard that episode, you already know that this is my favorite. <laughs> Well, I mean, normally at this stage, we would ask our uh, our esteemed guests to uh, talk about Star Trek and what Star Trek means to them. But we've already had that discussion with you. So um, mm -hmm. I guess we don't have to have that again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can do a little uh, I can do a little update to it. So for people who didn't hear my earlier episode, uh, I, I was kind of a fake fan. I was one of the very annoying fans who got into it through the 2009 movie. Uh, and I'd like seen reruns and stuff before just on TV, but, uh, you know, I never felt like I was a real Trekkie. And then I got so obsessed with that movie that I was like, well, now I have to watch all of the original series. And then I got really into TNG as well. Um, but no, Amok Time and I have a very special history because I believe this is the first episode of uh the original series that i really sat down to watch with the purpose of okay i want to see if i actually like star trek and everyone told me this was a very funny episode that would be very uh up my alley and it was <laughs> immediately uh something clicked in me and i was like oh star trek is great star trek is so funny i didn't know that they could do this kind of thing in the 60s well, I think we'll look forward to exploring just what they could and couldn't do in the yes. 60s. But, um, <laughs> excellent. Good stuff. They told you this episode was funny. That's an interesting uh, mm -hmm. it's an interesting adjective to choose. I, I very much look forward to, uh, to getting into more of that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, I think on that note, let's, let's just get stuck in. Um, Kev, I, I'm, again, not for the first time, I'm sure this is redundant, but would you please care to give us our episode summary? All right. In a muck time, uh, Spock is acting weird. He's shouting at people and getting emotional. And after a lot of like discussion about why Spock seems to feeling and him hiding a secret, it comes out that he is currently under the thrall of Ponthar, a Vulcan um, ritual biological impulse where he has to mate. We're going to be using like a lot of careful language to keep this project PG <laughs> as they did in the 60s, but he has to uh, do a matter of biology back on his home planet 
with his, uh, I guess we would call it a fiance, uh, to Pring. And so after a little bit of back and forth between Enterprise going on its mission and going back to Vulcan, it eventually sets course for Vulcan. There they meet Tapau, and Vulcan elder who refused the Federation Council seat, but still has some sway there. She oversees a ceremony where Spock is going to mate with T'Pring, but then T'Pring picks Kirk to ch- as her mate that Spock has to fight to the death instead. Spock, fully under Pondfire <laughs> Madness, does aggressively fight Kirk. When it seems like Spock is at her hand, McCoy injects Kirk with what he says is like an adrenaline booster, which actually puts Kirk into a fake death. Spock thinks he killed Kirk. The sort of illusion of Ponfar is shattered. Uh, T'Pring dumps him for some other guy anyways. <laughs> and then <laughs> Spock comes to the ship and is regretful about his actions. But Kirk's alive, because of course they faked it. And then they go on their merry way. Fantastic. Thank you very much. It is an interesting approach to dumping someone, I have to say. I've, even I've never been through that. But anyway, um, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, this is a mock time, so, you know. It's a mock time. We have to say something about it more than that, though. So, uh, Ellie, I mean, you've you've made your position in this episode um, clear, but would you like to give us some some opening general thoughts? Uh, how did you find it revisiting this episode? Did it, did it live up to your expectations of the best Star Trek episode of ever in any iteration oh, of the franchise? Absolutely. So this episode, I will say, I've seen what is probably an embarrassing amount of times because it's, it's one of those episodes where it's just like, if I'm in the mood for Star Trek... And I don't feel like getting into an episode that's like a big moral dilemma or like I don't I don't want to have to like think real thoughts about whatever the plot is giving me. Just like, oh, I can put a muck time on in the background like this one always really hits. Uh, And like I said, I think this episode is very funny, which I think is probably a weird way to describe this episode, because at the time when it came out, I imagine this was like very serious episode of like oh wow we're doing something brand new here like this is this is so uh different from other sci-fi like i don't think the concept of and i'm gonna be careful with my language i'm gonna keep it pg mate or die as you might say i think this might be like what introduced that trope into pop culture uh but now in today's world of 2023, it is so funny to watch this episode and be like, God, it's so self-serious about the fact that Spock is horny. <laughs> like, it's it's so funny how much of the episode is devoted to just very serious conversations of, like, something is wrong with Spock. What could it be? Is he going to be okay? And then the answer is just that he wants to have sex. Um, so yeah, it, this episode held up for me. We watched it last night, um, and it was still just as fun as ever. We watched it in a group also, which was great because people were really hooting and hollering during the fight and during all of the bits that I personally think are really funny. Um, so that was really fun to to see it with a crowd and to hear the other reactions of, again, people in 2023 who are very used to people being able to, like, have sex in TV shows without it being that big of a deal. And then sitting through an hour long episode of people just being like, whoa, it's crazy that, <laughs> that Spock wants to mate. Can you guys believe this? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, you say funny and JG think is interesting. And I think I see where you're coming from, JG. This isn't like a traditional comedy episode the way like Shorely mm-hmm. would be. But mm-hmm. it's still like, it is funny. 
Like well, there are funny bits in it, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's both like in ways that are intentional and unintentional. I think it's like maybe soapy is the right word because this isn't like yeah. Stay on the edge of forever or balance of terror are like very serious great episodes of the show. But they like mm. they're, they're great because they take the weight of all of their they're talking about very seriously, even if the sets are dodgy, even if the makeup's dodgy. Um, at least in twenty twenty three eyes, they still like have a self seriousness about them. Whereas this is just like there's a not even a tongue in cheek. That's not the right word, but like they know it's over the top. Like this is the show yeah, it, matching William Shatner's performance. <laughs> <laughs> it feels very melodramatic. I think yes. is maybe the right word. It it feels like a like what we would now describe as like fanfic right uh and at the time obviously fanfic was like it's still a pretty new concept but i feel like this could have been a fanfic at the time it hits that exact tone of like you've got homoeroticism you've got spock doing this made or die thing you've <laughs> you've got chapel there who has this tragic crush on him like there's so many aspects of it that are so soap opera-esque, like you said, Kev. Mm -hmm. And I think that does lend to a very funny tone if you're watching it uh, in the right mood to not take it seriously. Yeah, and it, because it takes them a long time to get to Vulcan, there's a lot of stuff in the Enterprise sort of prior to their arrival that tries really hard to kind of like build up the drama of of what's happening with Spock. But like like you say, it, it kind of tips over into melodrama. and mm -hmm. And... I don't think that undermines the episode in any way. I think the episode is is still great for being able to to get away with that kind of melodrama. But also, I kind of feel that the time spent on the Enterprise sometimes I don't want to say it's a little slack in places, but it kind of is. You know, it, mm -hmm. I understand that they're trying to build up the drama of the moment, and that moment in Kirk's uh, sorry in Spock's quarters where he sort of finally explains what's going on to Kirk um gets all of the point across and we have one or two incidents earlier on like the soup being thrown out of and you know sort of nurse chapel being shocked by it and all that kind of stuff but i think maybe there's maybe just one too many of those little moments where maybe we could have spent mm -hmm. a bit long on vulcan um with more than four slightly embarrassed looking muscular extras mm -hmm. and you know that that <laughs> might have helped to you know flesh out that that world there's lots of really interesting stuff about Vulcan, and we'll get onto that in a minute. Um, but you know, instead, we you know we have about three or four scenes in, in Spock's red velvet sex dungeon on his ship, um, which is just—I <laughs> mean, it's a look. Um, and, and you know, we maybe only needed one or two scenes in Spock's sex dungeon. That, mm. that was enough to be going on with. It yeah, it goes on really long. The amount of conversations they have, where it's just Spock refusing to say what's wrong with him. It honestly, like, the the longer it goes on, the more comical it gets. And I think they also, at the time, were probably not expecting, like, oh, people are going to watch this episode over and over someday. Mm -hmm. Like, this will be in reruns for the, you know, the next 70 years, and people will be familiar with this episode inside and out. But, like, the more times you see this episode, the funnier it gets, the amount of time that they spend on just people being very stressed about not knowing what's wrong with Spock and the level of embarrassment he has about saying it. And I I feel like there are ways that he could have explained this to people <laughs> without it being such a big deal. He could have just been like, hey, it's this illness that 
Vulcans get and I have to go like do this special ritual. Like he he really overreacts in hindsight mm-hmm. to this concept of like it is it, it is an illness. Like it's funny that the illness is just he's so horny that he'll die. But I I feel like he could have uh gotten the point across without being such a baby about it. Yeah. It's definitely a way in like an age before like B plots in TV shows. Mm-hmm. And also they have like 50 minutes to fill. It definitely does draw it out a little bit. And it's all good before it gets incredible, but it's still mm-hmm. good. It, but it is a killing time in its own way as well. Though it does mean mm-hmm. we get a lot of our new character who all the youth are going to go crazy for, <laughs> our mop top little Chekhov. Yay! And arguably okay, the so, worst wig in television history. Yes. Oh, I love Chekhov so much, and I'll also say that I, I don't think I've ever watched Star Trek in the right order. Mm-hmm. Like it's always just kind of been like I'll catch a rerun now and then, or I'll put on whatever episode I feel like watching in the moment. So I don't think I realized until last night that this was Chekhov's first episode. Yeah. And then watching it with that in mind, I was like, what a funny introduction that his whole plot in this episode is just being annoyed that he has to keep changing the course. Like, we don't learn anything about him Mm -hmm. other than he's, like, irritated to have to do his job. But I love Chekhov. I'm so glad he's here now. Um, I think he's an underrated character who gets a lot of fun moments. Mm -hmm. And that may be because my... You know, my introduction to the character was obviously in the 2009 movie where Anton uh, Yelchin played him. And I loved his performance so much. And I think he was an incredible actor. Uh, You know, so that obviously colored how I interpreted the character than when I got around to the original series. But yeah, I was delighted to learn that this particular episode was his first episode. Yeah, I mean, Anton Yelchin, as I think, like, quietly made my favorite cast member in that very stacked new movies cast. Mm-hmm. He was so good. I loved his checkoff. And I, I do like the checkoff is here. Like, Walter Koenig is having a good time, it seems. He seems mm-hmm. like he already seems more locked into, was it Leslie? Like, there was another helmsman who appeared like two or three times in season one who was very forgettable. Well, there was like a couple because mm-hmm. there's also the Irish one. Like, none of these. Oh, yeah. None of these guys stuck around. Whereas Chekhov, I think you instantly see, maybe there's a little more, like, care producers put into him. Like, mm-hmm. you can make him an actual distinct character so you can stick around like Hulu and Uhura do. Like, Sulu and Uhura do. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> yeah. There, like, there's also, I think, just Kaning has more of a presence than some of mm-hmm. the guys didn't make it to more episodes. And you just see that early on. He has, like, the Russian accent's a fun little touch, but also he just mm-hmm. has, like, a delivery and look about him that he's he's good he like feels part of the crew already yeah and i think it speaks to the fact that like i never realized this was his first episode like he does feel like he's already so locked into the role that i just never considered that this was his introduction well and he's got a really good rapport um with mm-hmm. josh takai as well that oh, yeah. makes a big difference <laughs> as well because that again it immediately lends itself to that idea that he's just kind of always been there even although he hasn't and that that immediate rapport blends the character credibility as well so even although he doesn't get an awful lot to do like he gets a, a funny bit and you know it's going to go on you know that's going to be a lot of what the character does going forward so it, you know it, it just works for him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean 
I think they're saying like not much to talk about with him here specifically. But yeah, it is worth noting that this is yeah first appearance works really well, and yeah, I I I do like that they don't make a big deal about it in a way a modern show might. He's just part of the crew now. He's just always been there. It feels like, and mm-hmm. yeah, it, we can just like go on our way. He got he does get like a nice. I think like he shows up on like a video screen first, and you get like a nice profile shot of him. So I guess that was their way of being like, here's a new character. But yeah, no like story significance to that. Well, and for for what it's worth, uh, Walter Koenig didn't get a contract. Uh, he was hired on a, an episode by episode basis. For so from uh, his perspective, like he was always quite pleased to get a script through and discover that he was in it because he wasn't under contract the way that say you know the the core cast were. Yeah, that makes sense. I think like well, Tiruhura and well, I should say Nichols and Takei and uh, uh, Montgomery gets the uh, contracts. Uh, James Doohan. Doohan. Oh, um, I always yeah. mix them up for some reason. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think they were down for a certain number of episodes every season. Um, so they were on contract Got at it. this point. And, and of course, DeForest Kelly has been promoted to well, the, yeah. the opening titles now, mm-hmm. lest we forget. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. It's like a great, fun new opening title sequence, a little longer. The theme is jazzier. And now mm-hmm. DeForest Kelly's in there. Upgrades all around. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're small details, but they do they do speak to the the way that the show's going, and you know it also, it's also a reflection on how well the first mm. series has done that they're prepared to kind of make those changes, and they they seem minor, I suppose, but it is it is just one of those things where you can feel the confidence of the show like take a step up. They've got their first season out of the way; they're into their sophomore season now, and they've explicitly chosen this episode to launch it. I think this was about I think this was fifth in the production run, if I remember correctly. Mm. And they explicitly chose this one to be the opener because they knew how strong it was. They knew that it was going to be one that would immediately capture people right out of the gate. So they they um, they pushed the production in the episode so that this one uh, could really have absolutely every single box ticked. Um, and then they could roll it out as, as episode one. So they, they shot a couple of episodes prior to this one whilst the script was still in production. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, more memory alpha facts, writer Theodore Sturgeon, um, they wanted him to write this late season one. Like, as soon as it became clear that Spock was a fan favorite character and all these people were writing, um, like, you know, works about him, let's say. And we were talking <laughs> about this last night, Ellie. We were speculating, like, oh, this episode was commissioned because season one was so popular and Spock was so popular. And mm-hmm. it seems like that was the case. They wrote yeah. this because they wanted a Spock episode. That was like very Vulcan centric and that drew on like the Spock fandom. And then this was like delayed from like late season one to early season Mm -hmm. two. So they had to, that's why they moved it up to the, like you said, they aired it first as like the big splashy return. Mm -hmm. Um, It, yeah, it really does feel like, uh, not to step into your recommendation, LA, but like the past equivalent (laughs) to Good Omen season two giving all the fans what they want. Yeah, this is pure fan pandering, which like, uh, you know, when Star Trek was becoming popular, fangirls were really driving a lot of the the popularity. And I know that there was kind of like an underground fanfic movement of people who like shipped Spock and Kirk. And like, obviously the internet didn't exist at that time. So like at conventions, I don't know how true this is. This is just what I've heard over the years. So if this is a false fact, I apologize. But I've heard that people would like, you know, have printed fanfic and they would just like kind of pass it around 
at conventions or whatever, because that like people have wanted to write about characters being horny together since fiction began, I assume. Um, but yeah, this, this episode does feel very much like, you know, they sat down and wrote it with fangirls in mind being like, okay, we've got the perfect idea to launch season two. We're going to give people exactly what they want. These two characters who you really like together and like it's the 60s, so we can't exactly say in what way you like them together. We're going to have them wrestle in the sand. And it's... <laughs> It's going to be that they're fighting over this woman who has scorned Spock and Kirk is going to be this hero for him. Like, it's it's such a weird, erotic, romantic premise that, like, there's no other way to interpret it mm -hmm. other than we're pandering directly to the fans who want to see this exact kind of thing. But we can't give you more because we're still in the 60s. I mean, it's a almost direct line from this throwing fuel in the fandom fire. And now we have the Omega verse in 2023, <laughs> which if you don't know what that is, uh, spare yourself. But <laughs> um, yes, it's, it really is just like such a charged premise. And I just think there's something, this whole episode could just be about like the tension between uh, Kirk and Spock and like how, if they can't, do anything inappropriate on screen and they'll have to wrestle it out. Yeah. And like what that means, like male, male bodies on each other in that way, like <laughs> is like the closest they can get to depicting that kind of thing. Yeah. Like they're straddling each other in the fight scene. It's wild. Uh, and like our whole group got the giggles basically during the scene where it takes Fox so long to be like, it's a matter of Vulcan biology like we were all just giggling to ourselves because it's so funny to draw it out like that and then there's that long shot on kirk's face when he's thinking mm -hmm. about how vulcans choose their mates and he like looks sad for some reason it's it's hysterical if you're watching it with the you know believing that they want to be a gay couple if you watch it through that lens that scene is the funniest thing in the world well and especially as they're all being watched by these big muscle marys at the yes. side with their arms crossed across yeah. their, their perfectly smooth <laughs> chests <laughs> and like shatner's shirt rips and everything oh, like, oh yeah his big heaving bosom as he <gasps> oh, shatner yeah. is really going for it to make his chest stand out in that yeah, scene so really yeah there's heaving. if you want to go there <laughs> uh, and it's there's so much in this episode that like i mean we can't go back I, if you ask william shatner today hey how gay were you playing in that time <laughs> he wouldn't answer <laughs> and many of the people involved are unfortunately deceased so we can't like I don't, it's almost hard to analyze but this they do such a good job putting enough of a blank slate on like a lot of aspects of this episode. So not only can you ob obviously read the Kirk Spock tension, but like the Chapel Spock tension, like inspired whole subplots in Strange New yeah. Worlds. And like, it all reads so much more with like irony and dramatic tension, how that show has played out so far. And then all the Vulcan culture just gives you so much to like fill in the blanks of too. They just do such a good job of leaving enough gaps in how the characters are relating and such to let you project what you want onto mm -hmm. it, which is just, it's like good writing. Like that's how you can sort of get away with these sort of things without ever saying what you're not supposed to say out loud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I feel like that is part of why it's 
it's almost hard for me to be objective about Strange New Worlds because so many of the plots that I really like from that show are directly spun off from this one episode that I really, really love. And so it's basically like Strange New Worlds to me is just like fan fiction from my favorite episode of Star Trek. To be like, okay, but let's see how they got here. And it's done a pretty good job of sticking to the canon of this episode. Like there are a few things that contradict, like, you know, when we see Tifring and she's like a child in this episode, um, so that's obviously slightly different from in Strange New Worlds, where they're like in a real relationship as adults. But other than that, like I, I do feel like they've pretty much fleshed out the world of my favorite episode in a great way. And this was my first time rewatching it since, uh, you know, the new season of Strange New Worlds. And yeah, like I've said, there are a lot of new layers to it. I don't want to spoil Strange New Worlds for people who aren't keeping up with it from week to week, but. There's uh, there's a couple of things that happened this season that I was like, oh, this is this hurts so much more now watching this episode and knowing what happens to them. I think we can get into it because this is at our current still going to come out late August, but we might record and slip in a strange new world season two episode even mm-hmm. before this. The whole season would have definitely okay. aired. But for the for the listener, Ellie and I have seen the first six and JG's seen the first eight. So maybe there's stuff that happens in the finale we won't mm-hmm. be referencing. But yeah, um, like everything with episode five of season two of Strange New World, where you have Spock and Chapel in a full-on situationship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that is that is going to obviously bite them at some point in the future if they're acting like this in the original series. <laughs> yeah, they've we've we've just seen the episode where they had a big kiss finally, and again we were watching that episode in a group, and our group went wild. We were so excited. Um, but no, then watching uh, Amok Time very shortly after that being like, oh, it's so painful. Like she's still into him years later. And then like there's the there's the wonderful uh, two scenes where first he's complaining to Bones saying something like, well, a woman shouldn't like make soup for a man who's not hers. It's that's disgusting or, you know, whatever. And then later he actually very gently asks her, like, would you please make that soup for me? And like, I I don't know, when I originally saw this episode, I just thought like, oh, he's being nice. He realizes that he was like mean to her earlier and he realizes that she has a crush and he's just trying to be kind before he goes off to get married. And now that scene reads so totally differently, knowing that they were like a couple at some point in the past. And now it now it reads as like mm-hmm. You know, he, oh, he wishes he could still be with her, but he has to go through with this, this betrothal that he's been in for his whole life. Like it, it added such a new layer of romantic drama for me. And that's so exactly my thing. That's what I want out of these shows. So I, I love everything that uh, has been fleshed out about a muck time. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's just the genius of this episode is it gives you so much room to flesh things out. Like, there is so much going on with just the characterizations, but also, like, the Vulcan culture. They say, like, just enough fake words and weird rituals that you can, like... There is so much there that also Strange World has also explored. And, and this is our first time seeing Vulcan and Vulcans. So, yeah, it's, like, such a good job of suggesting so much without saying as much and letting the fans go crazy with it. 
Yeah, and so much of that Vulcan culture is is built up. And one of the one of the interesting things I think is just how much fealty this episode has managed to generate amongst future seasons. It's not just uh, Strange New Worlds. Um, you know, Voyager has the same thing with Tuvok having to go through Pomfar when he's in the Delta Quadrant. And you know, like you know, it's not. It it would be an easy thing to kind of put to one side because on on the one hand. Like the 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 mating drive that's compared to salmon spawning up sque- uh, upstream seems <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> just 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 in the face of it, it like it gives it gives a good motivation to get us to Vulcan and spend a bit of time with you know um, somebody's you know stern granny or whatever, um, and that's fine. But you know, like it, it, don't think about it too hard because it doesn't like how I. I how would that develop? Like, like how long have Vulcans been traveling the stars and then having to rush back with about a week to spare just in case? Have they got like Ponfar calendars on their desk that they just like <laughs> rip a page off every? I don't know. Anyway, um, it's what it just it doesn't make a lot of sense, but you know, functionally, I suppose it 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 works for the episode. But it would be an easy thing to discard. Like you know, for for future Vulcans, they could just say, "Oh well, we've we've found a way of." Um, you know, overcoming it with with mm-hmm. uh, some you know hypo spray or um, I don't know holodeck <laughs> pimping or something like. But there must be must be. No, I, I could say so many inappropriate things here, but I'm also trying to keep it as PG as possible. But you know, um, you know, like there would be um, a lot of ways around that. I think it speaks to the quality of the episode and how you know, foundational this episode is that nobody has tried to do that kind of workaround. It persists up up to mm-hmm. to now, to 2023 in Strange New Worlds. But, you know, like 90s Star Trek, uh, 20th century Star Trek also paid fealty to all of this stuff as well. And and nobody had to. It, I, I really think it's such a mark of, of how good a job Theodore Sturgeon did with creating all that back background sort of Vulcan material that, you know, even something as, as on the surface <laughs> silly as Spock's a salmon um, mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. manages to to hold up to this day. Absolutely. Also, just worth shouting out, because I just learned some Wikipedia, first episode is the Vulcan salute, which is like maybe the mm-hmm. most iconic thing in the show next to the ship itself, <laughs> the Enterprise, yeah. is the salute. So good on it. Um, and... Yeah, like, paying fealty, like, this episode, I can feel it still looms so large, even in, like, the 21st century track that I've been watching. Like, it's, like, Stranger World, it's all over. But, like, also, the sort of melodrama and, like, obsession with, like, little, like, cultural minutiae mm-hmm. and stuff feels impactful on lower decks. Like, how they conceive and visualize Vulcans is not just Spock, but, like, taken from here. And, like, I guess, yeah, everyone else in that, guest casting episode is basing it off Leonard Nimoy's performance, but that they they all do such a good job that it then really sets the tone for mm-hmm. the species going forward. So it is just like such an impactful episode to like really expand the scope of the show as it goes into its second mm-hmm. season. Yeah, I feel like Star Trek does such a good job of building a fake culture in a way that does feel very like natural like there's there's something about the way they build out the Vulcan culture in this episode where 
they leave just enough gaps for us, like as the human audience, where it's like, yeah, this does feel mm-hmm. like a very weird, ancient, mysterious ritual that like, I, I, there's something in me that understands this on like a primal level of like, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is like an ancient culture. And this is what they do. And it, it like, it's remarkable that even in 2023, it doesn't feel that corny or cheesy. Like it, it does feel like if you told me that this was an ancient culture that was just discovered somewhere in Earth's history and this, like they rang bells around a guy before he had to mate and then they tied a sash on him, and, like I would believe it. You know, there's something that feels believable about mm-hmm. it, even though it is very, very silly. And I think that really helps with uh, why a lot of these things stick around for so long in Star Trek and become part of the lore that everybody loves so much. I mean, I think we should talk about some of the set and prop production design on Vulcan, which is just all spectacular. The little hexagons love with the bells them. in them. Amazing. I It's love tambourine. Them. It's a Vulcan tambourine. <laughs> yeah, I one of my favorite things are the the outfits that they're wearing. Like I love the silly little silver hats. I love that their outfits kind of look like they're made out of um you know those things that people put on their car windows to like block out the sun? It it looks like they're made out yeah. of those. It looks like they had a budget of about a hundred dollars for those costumes, and someone found a storeroom full of those sunblocker things that you put in your car. They were like, "I've got it. This is gonna look great." I mean, this is definitely one of the higher budget episodes, though. I mean, working with sixties hmm. resources and all, but like the, they built the whole set in the soundstage of the Vulcan like battle arena. All the costumes, like they look kind of goof, like you said, but they oh, also yeah, the designs look are good great. still. <laughs> they like, stra- yeah, they straddle the line of being like almost mm-hmm. BDSM without crossing over a threshold. <laughs> um, yeah, there's just a lot of like good design on Vulcan. That's just that perfect sweet spot of like late mm-hmm. 60s sensibilities for the sort of thing. Well, and one of the things that they were originally planning to do when it came to shooting a mock time was that they were originally planning to go on location. Um, and they'd either find like like somewhere, you know, Ralph over near LA, which had like like a bit of desert or, you know, was really hot. But they decided against it. And one of the reasons they decided against it was because it would force them to mm. use a blue sky. Um, mm. And it would kind of break the illusion of, of Vulcan not only being hot and arid, but an alien planet. And so rather than go on location to shoot that footage, they did everything on the soundstage because that way they could have complete control of the environment, not only in terms of, you know, things like um, external influences like weather, but also it meant that they could design the entirety of the environment to reflect the kind of planet the script was trying to communicate that Vulcan was. And so things like the the sort of uh, the... the um, the, the rim of the edge of the arena that Kirk and Spock are fighting in is designed to look a little bit like uh, it might have been manufactured, but it might also be like an extinct volcano. You couldn't get that if you just went to like Vasquez Rock or something. Oh, yeah. You know, you need to have somebody specifically design that and, and get a lineup between the, the, the culture that you're trying to portray, the uh, environment within which it exists, and the way that these characters are reacting because of it. And getting all those things to line up, I mean, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Kev, you and I are familiar enough with Doctor Who to know how often that went awry. Uh, It's it's very, very hard. But in a mock time, 
it all came together. And making decisions like that not to go on location allowed them to, you know, get everything exactly working the way it should. And as a result, you get this incredibly unified culture that looks like everything, all, every part of it looks like it, it works together. And so it immediately becomes believable, no matter how much homoeroticism there is sort of lurking about at the edges. And that, just one other sort of very small point, but um, which I think, again, is very much to the benefit of this episode. But originally, when the, the wedding party, if you want to call them that, to pow and to praying and store, um, mm-hmm. turn up. Uh, so I don't know why I find his name so funny. I just do store. Um, when they were originally used to turn up, it was going to be like a, like a flying ship that brought them into the arena. And of course, it was beyond the budget of the show. So they were going to do it just by sound effect. And the uh, decision was taken that that would be kind of cheating the audience just to have it like as an off-camera sound effect. So the most believable approach they could come up with was just to have them walk on set. But actually, it works much better because it's kind of formal. You don't have some cheesy special effect that looks like, you know, things on strings or whatever. And it's just it's just this kind of like this very old, dignified woman at the head of the party, the muscle marys and the bride behind and all the rest. And it, it looks much more kind of formal. It looks much more ritualistic, which is what you want from that kind of environment. So again, just those small little decisions all help to add up to make this culture a a unified whole. And it just works incredibly well for the episode. I think what also works incredibly well for unifying that culture is the guest performances. Um, Celia Lovsky as Mm -hmm. T'Pau and Arlene Mm -hmm. Martell as T'Pring are both just wonderful in what they're given to do. I mean, Lovsky has a little more to do. And as this, like, matriarch, like, I love her line deliveries. I think she perfectly nails, the, like, the Vulcan attitude mm-hmm. and hits the moment she needs to hit so well. Um, but, like, I mean, Martell as well. Like, <laughs> she she becomes such a heel with, like, five lines. Like, she doesn't have much to do, but, like, stand there with an attitude about her and then deliver some exposition. And she just nails it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's wild with the the very short amount of screen time that she gets, you know, overall, the, the way she can actually go toe to toe with Spock and feel like she's holding her own as one of the only other major Vulcan characters we've seen. Uh, yeah, she feels so like naturally locked into what we understand a Vulcan to be. And I, I think she gives a great performance. And she's I think it's also uh, a really great uh, indicator of how strong her performance is that she's so unlikable as a character to me, even though she, like, I should feel so much empathy for this character in modern day. Because if you, if you look at the plot, it is just pure sexism. It's like, oh, this woman is going to become the property of the victor. Like, they even use the word property at some point. Uh, so, like, as a woman in 2023 watching this, I should be like, oh, I really feel for T'Pring. But her performance is just so cold and unfeeling. And, like, obviously, because we as the audience really love Spock and we want the best for him because he's our favorite boy. Uh, yeah, I think she does a great job becoming that heel character and making the audience dislike her even yeah. though everything about the plot should be encouraging me to be on her side and be like, yeah, girl, get it. You're in love with this other Vulcan. I I understand. You do you. <laughs> yeah. It, it's interesting how that horseshoes around 
where in the 60s, I have no doubt that the perspective of T'Pring is, look at this man-hating yeah. woman wanting what she wants. <laughs> and then you're right, and like a modern person who should feel sympathy for her, but it almost whips around where it's like, well, why can't a female villain exist? And she's like being kind of an asshole, pitting men against each other, and then taking this poor Ston for her own. <laughs> and curse the line to Ston, like, I hope you can handle her. <laughs> like, that's funny. Like, I don't hate her, obviously, the way maybe Theodore Sturgeon does. <laughs> but I do think it's like a fun presence to have her be a heel, yeah. like you said. What I also think is really fascinating about it is, is that we have a lot of this stuff about, you know, women being treated as uh, possessions mm-hmm. and, and, you know, uh, T'Pring is going to be, you know, possessed by, by Stun. Um, uh, I can't get over <laughs> that then. Um, but actually, the only characters that have any agency on Vulcan at all are female. Um, i.e. T'Pau and T'Pring. Ston has no agency whatsoever. He's just a plank of wood that has to stand (laughs) at the side and let people make decisions about his life, whether he wants or not. He's got like five lines in the entire thing. And even though Spock is nominally our lead Vulcan, he also doesn't really have any agency. For most of it, he's being driven by an urge which is beyond his control. And then when it actually comes to the conclusion of the episode, it's T'Pring that steps in, makes the judgment call, and rejects him. So the two female characters are the only two characters in the entirety of Vulcan that we experience in this episode who mm-hmm. have any kind of agency, who have any ability mm-hmm. to actually act. Every other male character is either standing aside with virtually no lines, a muscle Mary in a tight-fitting uniform, or Spock, and that's it. There's and so there's a there's a sort of very interesting tension between what the script is kind of telling us in terms of its um, attitude to women as being something uh, to be possessed or some you know people to be possessed, and you know following this very kind of ritualistic, very kind of formalistic approach to marriage. Um, we're told that um, you know Kirk and uh, uh, sorry uh, Spock and Spring are were uh, engaged at seven, I think it was. Yeah. But at the same time, they're the only ones who can do anything within the confines of the structures which have been put in place. I don't think you would in any way call this <laughs> feminist. No. But I think it's, I think it's no, definitely not. But I think it's a very, very interesting, uh, a very interesting, and in some ways a very sly approach to have the two female characters who are nominally uh, constrained by this actually be the only mm-hmm. two with any agency. That is a great point. And I I also really, uh, like one of my favorite parts of this episode is when bring at the very end lays out the logic behind her plan and everything she's done. And it's I think it is really interesting that in an episode where no one else is using their brains at all, like Spock is too horny to have a coherent thought, Kirk is just confused the whole time about what's going on. So to have the woman character at the end turn out to be the smartest one, who's like, well, I thought through how to get out of this stupid engagement that I didn't want. No one else could think it through, but I came up with this plan on my own and it worked perfectly. I think that's really interesting. And I also think it's really cool that uh, that way of laying out the logic behind her actions, they've carried through to the character of T'Pring in Strange New Worlds. Like, her character felt so set in stone just based on that one scene of her explaining herself so clearly. Um, And so, yeah, I do think that is probably, again, not feminist, but it is a cool spin to put on an episode where it could have felt so outdated and sexist and she comes away feeling like she is the one who's in control of herself in the situation 
I think the other thing that sort of avoids a Miri or Space Seed scenario where this is not a kind episode <laughs> of the woman, but like takes it takes that edge off it a bit, is that Tapau is like a very strong mm-hmm. and sympathetic character. Yeah. Like I think if that had been a male Vulcan leader, it would have been much more mm-hmm. Ugh. but having it be like like you said like a fe- the other Vulcan being female, um helps. It really does. It means it's not all on to bring being the standard all Vulcan womanhood. But so there's this like very respected like sort of that Roddenberry vision of diversity in the future. This female leader of Vulcan people is very respected. Even the male enterprise officers and Starfleet officers. Like she sends a message to an admiral basically giving Kirk an absentee mm-hmm. excuse <laughs> from school. <laughs> um and they accept it like she holds a lot of power and is like sympathetic situation. She's like, Kirk, you don't have to do this. I'm sorry. You're about <laughs> to get into this. Like, she's just like following the rules. So I think that character is very interesting. Iris and Lovsky is really good as the role. Like oh, yeah. her and Nimoy's scene where like Nimoy is like begging not to, go, or Spock is like begging not to go through with it. And like, she's like, oh, you gotta do it, buddy. Like that is just such great acting from both her and Nimoy. That character in general really grounds this episode in such a great way. And again, it's a noticeably unusual character for Star Trek to have like that kind of sort of older woman with that sort of authority. I mean, even Kirk says, you know, that's the power of Vulcan. How can I back down in front of her? You know, she's that impressive. She's that intimidating. Like, nothing Kirk has encountered from weird space aliens to, like, pseudo-gods to um, children with the power to really, really annoy you has in any way intimidated him. But when T'Pau steps out, suddenly, yeah, I, I can't mm-hmm. possibly, you know, like, back down in front of that. That that just just his reaction alone sells the authority, even without before Celia sort of Lusky said a, a single line. And then when we actually do get the performance, like suddenly that and that immediately backs up Kirk's reaction to the situation, to the character. Um, it's an extraordinary performance. I think honestly, I think easily the best in the episode. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you think Lovsky's is the best in the episode? Yeah. Oh yeah, that is that's almost controversial because we're going to talk about two incredible performances. I think down the road. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. But yeah, I, I know. But no, but her performance is incredible. Like I can't, I almost can't argue with it either. But mm. uh, well, why don't we get into it and let's start with Shatner? He is like Yay. really <laughs> fully locked into this. Like he knows, like he has that like Tom Cruise quality of like he knows the angles innately of the cam. Like he knows exactly to position himself. He's exactly how much to dial up the ham, but still bring the gravitas. Like this is maybe the most locked in he's been in any episode, give or take. See it on the edge of forever. And I was asking something very different of him. This is that was like play it quieter, play it serious, and this is your Oscar moment, Shatner. Whereas this is like, Shatner, go off, go crazy. <laughs> we talked about, like, the chest heaving earlier, but, like, also all the scenes were, like, trying to figure out what's wrong with Spock, even just, like, the quiet space scenes, he is, like, just going to ham, bringing the gravitas to mm-hmm. what is wrong with my friend. It's just so good. And he holds a close-up so well in the scene I was talking about earlier where he finally finds out what's wrong with Spock and there's just that long shot of Kirk reacting to this news and it's so dramatic. And I think a a lesser actor would have either been too dramatic about it or would have just kind of played it off as like, 
a joke because it is kind of funny, these two guys being like, oh, it's a matter of biology. But I think he hits the exact right tone. And the tone he hits, again, I, look, I'm not a huge uh, Kirk Spock shipper. I'm not one of those people who's like, this was always intentional, that they would have been a couple. I don't think that, but there's clearly a quality to these performances that I can 100% understand why they launched all of these fanfic beliefs about the characters and there's that specific scene hits the exact tone of you could play this as like a love scene and it would work perfectly and whether you believe that's a romantic a romantic love or you believe that that's the love between these two friends who are co-workers and have been through all of these challenges and adventures together it still works so well and you get so much emotion out of a scene that could have been played as a comedic joke I think what a lot of Shatner imitators and parodies get wrong is that Shatner can be so vulnerable when he wants to be. And when the script asks him to be, he can deliver that in spades. And I think that is what characterizes like what this episode so well is he can switch from vulnerable and concerned and empathetic for his like friends and his crew and then still put on the bravado show of playing with like the little axe sticks and <laughs> ripping his shirt and everything. Like he really can do both and he does both mm -hmm. so well, but he doesn't like harden his heart and act so swaggery and careless. He really is like an empathetic guy deep down. Mm -hmm. um, and it just shows it's such a wonderful, like tender performance mm -hmm. when it needs to be. And, and he gets like a very fun fight scene where he's really going all out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of parodies play Kirk as like a very shallow person. Uh, and there's also, you know, the parodies of like, oh, Kirk just cares about like hooking up with women and stuff. And it's like, I don't know, when you watch the original series, that's so different from how the character is portrayed most of the time. Like, I don't think he's a shallow character giving a shallow performance at all. I think there's actually a lot of emotional depth that William Shatner puts into all of his scenes, like even the really kooky fight scenes, like there's still something there of, you know, it's not just a, just a cool action scene. Like you can really get the emotion behind why he's doing this very silly fight. And I, I honestly feel like he doesn't get enough credit for his performance in the original series, which feels dumb because he's to say, because he's one of the most iconic parts of all of Star Trek ever. But I, I do feel like there's something in the public consciousness now that kind of writes him off as oh well that's like a very silly over-the-top actor and you know he he can be grounded and very uh very emotionally deep when he wants to be it's almost the mission of this podcast to keep saying nice yeah. things at William Shatner <laughs> for that reason <laughs> yeah i think a lot of that reputation um for for kirk being uh, you know, a bit shallow and all the rest. I think a lot of that it kind of comes from the movies as well, uh, which do have like a, a, their own kind of cultural gravity around them. Uh, because you know, apart from anything, you know, like they're in constant reruns on TV, and you know, when the show came back to public consciousness, that was that was the way that a lot of people kind of accessed them. So a lot of the kind of details of the original show tend to get smooshed out. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree with the assessment that it's his vulnerability that makes Kirk such an interesting character. And, you know, like the, the real genuine concern that he has 
for a Spock, how much he's prepared to put in the line. You know, it's, it's something that we haven't mentioned so far, but you know, like he's basically prepared to just blow up everything if it means he'll get to Vulcan and be able to save his friend. You know, he tries to resist it early on in the episode and, you know, he'll, he, when he doesn't quite understand what's happening, but as soon as he does understand, it's like, yeah, you know, he'll go to hell and high water in order to make sure that, uh, that Spock gets back. That's, that's the end of the story. And, and that, it, that kind of loyalty and yet strange fragility as well is one of the reasons that, that Kirk uh, becomes and is such a, a compelling character. And, and Shatner is simply perfect at being able to, to bring that across. I mean, even the, the, the uh, little campy um, reaction behind Spock after Spock still thinks uh, Kirk is dead and the thing, and, you know, <laughs> well, don't you think you should ask me first? And it's just that, like, it's so silly. But again, he lands it just so well. It's just exactly what that performance needs. I, I'm trying to find the line. Oh, yes, I found it. I did find a transcript, so I found the line. Um, Isn't that worth a career? He's my friend. I owe my life a dozen times over. Like, Kirk just laying it very blatantly on the line, like, I don't care if this gets me in trouble with the top brass, not being here for the ceremony. I need to help my friend out. Mm-hmm. Like, that is the character in a nutshell. I, I think you're right, JG. It's like the movies, and I think also Shatner, the actor's reputation, and they preceded the character mm-hmm. a bit. Because <laughs> that man definitely did have oh, an yeah. ego and not a lot of vulnerability. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fair. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, at least the character as written and that he found it in him to perform is such a like a sensitive and empathetic guy that is just so lovely. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about uh, Shatner's ego a little bit? Because last night, our group, when we, we got to the fight scene where, of course, Kirk's shirt is perfectly ripped to reveal his chest, which is the funniest way that his shirt could have ripped. Like, it... It feels like, why didn't they just do the scene, like, shirtless if this is what you wanted to do? But our group was debating, do we think William Shatner himself insisted, like, I need this shirt ripped perfectly to reveal my nipples. I want them out in this scene. I want everyone to see my heaving cleavage during this fight scene. And I think it's a strong possibility that that was his idea to rip it that specific way. Well, we know from um, from the uh, episode Charlie X, where Kirk is not just ripped, but shirtless, oh my, mm-hmm. um, that he really didn't like the idea of having to go shirtless. Um, oh, really? Least, yeah, not least of which was because um, Gene Roddenberry made him shave his chest. Uh, William Shatner's chest is naturally hairy, not oh. smooth. Uh, but apparently Gene Roddenberry normal person here um thought that uh, men in the 23rd centuries wouldn't have hairy chests huh. see also see also the vulcans um standing behind spot <laughs> watching watching with um stoic lack of amusement at this slightly comical fight scene but they're also all smooth chests uh, <laughs> smooth chested and it was a, a weird obsession that gene roddenberry had um uh lawrence uh Monte- uh Again, I don't. I'm going to pronounce that wrong. Ston uh, also uh, ended up having a huge falling out with Gene Roddenberry because Gene Roddenberry asked him to shave his chest for this episode, and he didn't want to. It was like a step too far. Like it's a whole thing with Roddenberry. So 
like it, again, it's easy to think, oh yeah, that that I mean, you know, Kirk's heaving bosom is definitely <laughs> uh definitely it's definitely a moment in the episode. But was it Shatner? I don't know. The the, the, the balance of evidence so far would suggest that he wasn't that comfortable getting his getting his his knockers out at every opportunity. Wow, I can't believe I never knew this fact. That's so weird and like I I need to sleep on this and really think about what this means for the rest of Star Trek because there feels like there's some there homoerotic uh, stuff in there about uh, Roddenberry insisting that everybody shave their chest and that men should be hairless in the future. There's <laughs> there's a weird belief yep. in there somewhere and I have to really uh, crack what that is. I mean... This is the same guy who kept casting his wife as different Star Trek roles, always as the horniest oh, yeah. character on screen at any given time. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, Mantle Barrett, great performance as Chapel in this episode. Uh, we almost don't have time to get into it, but I do mm-hmm. really like her. Oh, yeah. The scene where she, uh, you know, is in there checking on Spock and he's just laying there crying. And, and then, you know, just the close up on her face when he finally asks her to go make that soup, like... There's so much unspoken emotion behind that. And it is a performance that like you can layer as much meaning onto it as you want. If you believe that this is just a a crush that she has that's hopeless, great. If you believe that there's a history between them in the past, great. You can read anything you want into that incredible, sad, heartbreaking look that she gives in that scene. Um, I think we didn't have to talk about what I think is the best performance of this episode and like a career highlight mm-hmm. for one Mr. Leonard Nimoy, who is just like, I mean, it really, Grant, a lot of the episode, he is just rolling his eyes and tenting his fingers <laughs> in a weird way in the corner. And so uh, maybe that is a controversial opinion, but, uh, and he does a great job about that too. Uh, him playing the Ponfar sickness is just so like, full committed Mm -hmm. i don't care how dumb i look i am conveying the right emotion kind of stuff oh yeah like the wrong actor could have made this so campy and he he does play it with like again a very it's a very silly premise i want to keep saying that there's something so ridiculous about this premise but he pulls it off so well by playing it so seriously and he's so committed to it and like it's also such a change from how we see Spock the rest of the time. Like, I think he does a great job showing restraint in this character, even when he is supposed to be like losing total control. And I think that helps ground it and keep it from becoming just like a parody of Spock. The the moment I specifically want to shout out is when he realizes Kirk is alive. And for at least the only time so far, uh, who knows, maybe the only time in the series without anything else influencing him, uh, Spock fully cracks and Nimoy puts on the biggest smile on his face. And it just, it means so much. Like, the fact that he was reserved for 29 episodes and then 30 episodes in, they let him crack a smile. It just, that is restraint and payoff. That is like perfect television when you do that, deploying something at the right time. And it's just like the smallest thing, but it's at the same time, it's just that bowled me over the way Nimoy like sells that huge goofy grin on his face and sort of shameful trying to hide it. It's such well, a- he goes he goes straight back into the closet. I know. It's and I think there's wonderful. also something so like sweet about that scene being in this episode, specifically because we've just sat through 
50 minutes of this man talking about how it's so humiliating to show emotion and how he's so embarrassed that he needs to go mate with somebody and like he doesn't want anyone to know that he's experiencing these emotions and like even throughout the you know the episode of him going through pond far we only really see like very negative emotions coming out of spock uh, and this is like the first time we've seen him happy. And I think there's something so sweet about the fact that his uncontrollable emotion comes out again, even after his pond far is over and it's happiness this time. It's seeing his, his best friend is alive. I, you know, I think that speaks volumes to the kind of relationship they're trying to show between these two characters that it doesn't take some weird like ritual and biological process that he can't control for an emotion to come out of him. It's actually just seeing somebody he loves being okay. Yeah. I, I I think that just is such a powerful moment and the right time to deploy it. And like you said, like it, it's like a full capper on that Kirk Spock relationship that really, it pays off so much of what we learned over the last season and then really mm -hmm. takes it to the next level. And having McCoy and Chapel there in that moment, like smirking the cut to them, just kind of, mm -hmm. you know, trying to hold in giggles if the situation is so funny. I, I love that shot of them. Just mm -hmm. it's the first time they've seen Spock happy. It's so cute. <laughs> and of course we mustn't forget to mention the fact that McCoy saves mm -hmm. the day. Yeah. He, you know, he's he's just great in this, and another it's another kind of lovely performance from DeForest Kelly because it's quite understated mm -hmm. next to the mm -hmm. other two leads. Um, but yeah, he just like saunters up, has a solution, does it? Yeah, it's all right. Everyone gets to live and fight another day. It's great. I, yeah. I love the underplayed nature of that next to this kind of vast melodrama. And like he's he's like undercutting it in ways that like complement the episode too like on the sidelines. Like sometimes, like. I don't know, like undercut may not be the right word because he's not being Ryan Reynoldsy about it, <laughs> heaven no. <laughs> but he's Thank saying goodness. like, whereas um, Shatner and Nimoy and all the guest cast are like so swept up in the melodrama, Kelly gets to be the one with sort of like a more of a level head on his shoulders. And that just is so like, like we need someone to be like, this is how Vulcan society works and like calling out some of the ridiculousness and like kind of, leveling out sort of the ridiculous that play like he's perfect at that without like i said without undercutting it without like mm -hmm. taking away from the drama just commenting on it and i also think it's very uh funny that this character has just a, a big needle full of the exact drug needed to fake death ready to go at a moment's notice like why would he bring that to this ceremony i i just love when things like that happen in star trek where there's no logical reason for somebody to be carrying that around but he's He's always prepared, McCoy. I think it's great that he gets to be the hero and have this solution to the problem, uh, even if it, <laughs> like, you can't think too hard about it. Because if you think too hard about it, it's like, why would he bring that to a marriage ceremony? I don't understand. What was this meant for, McCoy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I've been to managers so I could have got out of like that. I mean, it makes, <laughs> makes perfect sense to me. There's still so much I want to talk about, but I mean, we've gone on pretty long. So there's, there's one more okay. thing I have to talk about, and then maybe we'll have some more stuff. 
But uh, the music, the music is incredible this episode. Like, what a step up from season one, which had good incidental music, but I don't think we talked about it much. I think this the soundtrack for Amok Time uh, from the recently deceased Gerald Freed uh, just a few months ago. But uh, it's it's amazing. I know they reuse a lot of musical cues from this for future episodes I've heard. And of course they would, because it's all, it's such a level up. Like the horns, the orchestrations, it's like, it's very proto John Williams in a way. And it's just also so fun and energetic. It really gives this episode a lot of life. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, the fight soundtrack specifically is so iconic and like i hate to keep going back to strange new worlds because i <laughs> like i i don't want to sound like i only like this episode because of strange new worlds or something that's not true at all i've loved this episode for a very long time but like i was so delighted when they did that very short uh fantasy scene last season where spock is in this arena going through Ponfar and the music kicks in like the music is just such a big part of the tone of this episode and it's part of what makes it so memorable and I think like if you are a Star Trek fan you can hear the first few notes of that fight music and immediately picture this episode in your mind so clearly and I, I think that's not necessarily true for a lot of other Star Trek music like i i can't picture a lot of the soundtrack of other episodes in my mind but this one instantly it just makes me feel like i'm watching the episode if i even think about the first few notes of of the fight soundtrack oh yeah i couldn't agree more there the, the, i i i always strongly resist the word iconic but i mean in this case i i can't think of a better sort of synonym for it, it it's a perfect example of exactly how music should work you know that's been parodied many times all of this it's just it's such a yeah such an iconic way of uh, of representing the episode and it just it just works and you know uh, particularly when we're getting it pounding out you know we start to get a lot of dutch angles we get like mm -hmm. quick camera cuts we got all this kind of dynamism going on on screen which honestly is not that common for television in 1967 so it's 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 making full use of all the kind of techniques that are available to television production in that time to try and convince us of just how dramatic this is going to be. And yeah, of course, it absolutely works. It, it, it's so well known now, still, after all this time, for precisely that reason. I think we should... Can we also talk a little bit about, like, maybe you guys know more about this than me. What was going on in television at the time, like... Was it actually unusual for this type of very sexually charged plot to make it onto television? Because I, I know that this is like a Desilu production, um, and I am—I may have mentioned this in my past episode. I'm a huge I Love Lucy fan. I'm extremely familiar with everything to do with I Love Lucy, and I just think it's very funny that this is uh, what is this 1967? I think when this episode comes out. And in the, the 10 years between I Love Lucy 
and Star Trek, like the change of, okay, well, Lucy is pregnant and that means that we can't show their, their beds together ever again, because then people will think about how she got pregnant. We can't have that. And you jump forward 10 years and it's like, yeah, we're doing an episode on TV about how Spock needs to mate or he'll die. And then he has this wrestling match with his friend and somehow that snaps him out of this like horny drive that he has. There's such a vast difference between those two things culturally and I've never put in the work to actually look into how TV progresses over time to get from point A to point B of this episode being able to air on television. Okay, so the answer to that question is that this is basically as extreme as you could be on television in <laughs> 1967. This was really, really pushing the boundaries. Like that whole speech in Kirk and, and between Kirk and Spock where, you know, they talk about, you know, the birds and the bees and, and, mm -hmm. and you know, Spock's talking about, uh, well, you know, I'm not a man and whatever. Like that, that's really as extreme as you could as you could be on television. No other show really was able to push the boundaries of, of what was uh, possible to that extent. And Star Trek could only get away with it because it was a sci-fi show. Mm -hmm. And that, that line, I'm not a man kind of lets them slip it past the censors a wee bit lets it slip it past the the the, the sort of the oversight board at, uh, at nbc it, it was um it really was abs i mean when i say it, at the limits mm -hmm. i mean it would be uh i mean i'm quite be like showing full penetrative now but you know, it's <laughs> like it, it's 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 it, it's getting towards that sort of level you know like like it was really it was really extreme and they were talking about sort of sex sexuality um, and all these kind of things in a way that just was not done on contemporary American television and certainly not on, on sci-fi. You know, we've, I've mentioned this a few times in the podcast before, but, you know, the kind of shows that Star Trek was contemporaneous with were things like Lost in Space and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. You know, even slightly more adult shows, like say Mission Impossible, like they just didn't approach sex in this kind of way. So it was really unique to have a show like star trek um address mm -hmm. the subject in such a, a direct and inverted commas explicit sort of way yeah i mean this must have blown people's minds at the time and i i think that context does well not just the yeah. minds i suspect <laughs> <laughs> but i think that does explain why they devote so much of the episode to building up to the idea of that's right. Spock needs to have sex. Like they really gave audiences a long time to first form their own theory about what was wrong with Spock. And then by the time you get to the reveal, it's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And we haven't mentioned it yet, but the fact that Spock does not need to have sex after he wrestled around with Kirk on the ground. <laughs> I don't think anything more needs to be said, I think. Yeah. <laughs> they left that they, there. <laughs> they just yeah. wrestled to completion. Uh, he got everything he needed out of that experience. <laughs> uh, there's just, I, I think we've said everything we want to say. So just like one more fact I want to get out that I think you'll appreciate. I'm glad you're here, Ellie, when I stumbled this upon this on Majel Barrett's um, Memory mm -hmm. Alpha page, uh, just clicking around. But so two years before Roddenberry started pitching Star Trek in 64, in 1962, Majel Barrett oh. met Lucille Ball. 
and appeared on when because she was appearing mm-hmm. on the Lucy show. I don't think I knew that. I need to look up so, what episode that. Oh, is. The, yeah. Oh, the Lucy. Okay, she wasn't on the Lucy show in '62. My bad. She met Lucille Ball at an acting class, mm-hmm. and then was later on the Lucy show. Um, but yes, yeah, '62, they met and became friends. I was trying to see if that's an explicit connection of why this was produced at Desi Lou. I can't. It doesn't seem to. Emory Alpha, at least, just seems to say in 64 mm-hmm. he pitched at Desi Lou and they accepted it. I wonder if Major Barrett's friendship with Lucille Ball got Star Trek made. Lucille Maybe Ball was a big part of why Star Trek got off yeah. the ground, yes. And I wonder, yeah, she was. She was. She was instrumental in Star Trek getting started. Absolutely. And so I just wonder if, like, that was that was a connection, was through Majel and not Roddenberry originally. It was like, she introduced the two. I think it's just very, very fun, if so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never looked into their friendship. I knew that they knew each other, but I mm-hmm. I don't think I even realized that she was on the Lucy show. I'm less familiar with the later uh, Lucille Ball shows than I am with, like, I Love Lucy and the whatever it's called now, the Comedy Hour. Um, but no, I think that is a good, a good theory, actually. <laughs> yeah, because I knew Lucille Ball was involved in Star Trek, like, heavily to get it going. I just didn't realize that it was through Majel, not Roddenberry, she had the initial connection mm-hmm. with. That's that's mm-hmm. very, um, or I should say, Majel, not Jean. But yes, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, just interesting fact that I just wanted to get out here while you were still on, but... Uh... Also, one of my greatest uh, regrets about television, I suppose, is that no one from the Isle of Lucy cast got to guest star on star trek god i wish we i guess i wish we could have seen just one of them doing like a real hammy guest appearance but that's that's something that'll have to exist only in my imagination (laughs) excellent well then i think in that case unless anybody has anything else to say uh, we can probably start drawing things to a close no i think i've i think i've gotten out most of my thoughts on this episode uh i think my last thought is just that I I can't wait for you guys to get to the next generation because mm-hmm. again the time jump from what is considered very uh, boundary pushing <laughs> and erotic in mm-hmm. the 60s to the kind of things that uh TNG gets away with I there are some episodes that I can't wait and there're many many years in the future but I will tease that there is an episode where someone uh has sexual relations with a ghost. And I, uh, yes, I've heard I, of there this. are a lot of episodes that are really going to uh, push the boundaries of, <laughs> of what you think you can see on TV in a very silly way. They're not as good in quality as a muck time. I think this is an outstanding episode. But uh, yeah, you've got some real kooky sex shenanigans to look forward to in the future with Star Trek. And all of that started with a muck time. <laughs> Cookie sex shenanigans. I mean, what better recommendation <laughs> could you possibly have for a TV series? Right, before we vanish down that particular rabbit hole any further, uh, let's draw things to a close and give this episode a score out of 10. So, Ellie, what would you like to give this episode? I mean, I can't be objective about this episode. I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. Is it the best episode of Star Trek? No. It, like, is the story, actually, if you think about it for more than a minute, is it a little weak and is it very silly? Probably. But I think that this episode has, like, stood the test of time for a reason. It does a great job establishing things about the Vulcan culture. It 
adds so many interesting layers to these characters and their relationships with each other. So I think even if you think the premise is very kooky, uh, it's it's still a great episode. It's still iconic for a reason. Um, so 10 out of 10 from me. And uh, my last thought on it is this episode is so uh important to the history of star trek that it's one of the episodes that they make specific action figures of and i do have a muck time action figures and i think that alone qualifies it for a 10 out of 10. well i for one am very proud of you for owning mock time (laughs) star trek action figures which i know is what you what you really count on is 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 my uh my approval from the other side of the atlantic ocean Mm -hmm. you you have it so we're all we're all good um thank you so much it's my pleasure i don't know whether to give this nine and a half out of ten or ten out of ten oh jg i'm going ten so you should just stand in solidarity ten ten (laughs) oh all right then i'll give it 10 Yay. yeah it's it's um yeah i mean it's it's it is in every sense of the word classic star trek and i just yeah. don't know what to, to, to add to that um i mean normally i would now throw it to you kevin and ask what you're going to give it but you've Ten. kind of kind of ruined the surprise <laughs> a wee bit there you've uh, you've yeah. um you've wrestled with kirk a little bit too early if you'll excuse me <laughs> yeah i mean i there was no doubt in my mind like as soon as like we finished watching like this is like only balance of terror is like so far what we've seen close to like or not even close but like maybe better than this like that those these are the right now the top two episodes in my mind and like of star trek in general it's like i don't know rat you could add wrath of khan to that pile and like not much else like this is like perfect television it's perfect star trek it's just such a great time watching it i've never like just felt like more alive than just, <laughs> just uh, it's wow so that's that's a recommendation and a half <laughs> it's like one of the episodes where when you think about star trek this is one of the first episodes that comes to your mind like it captures so much of what star trek is and goes on to be and i also think that if you're introducing someone to star trek this is a great episode to start with mm-hmm. because it's got a little something for everyone it's fun it's got action in it it's got serious parts with great performances it's got amazing music like this is what you want to show people if you're trying to convince them that star trek is a worthwhile show and not just like a a very corny 60s sci-fi and i will legitimately like cherish the memory of us watching it together with uh <laughs> with past uh, legitimately like with you and past and future guest carl garcia mm-hmm. and two people who might be on the pod if i can find room for them and convince them but yeah it's um it's so it was such a great time and yeah it, it's I, I love that tv episodes can give people such a great time together so really this is yeah this is it this is such a great piece of work honestly rowdy amok time screenings may be a great idea to <laughs> revitalize the franchise people should get on that i would pay to attend a rowdy amok time screening <laughs> We shall look forward to that as a future development of this series. Then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but okay. Before we before we ramble too far um, off topic, let's let's draw us back to something which is in fact completely off topic, and <laughs> move towards our recommendations. So, Ellie, what would you like to recommend? All right. So, uh, Good Omens season two is out now. I went to uh, a screening of the first two episodes with our friend Alex. And uh, I, I will uh, 
uh, I will start by saying that I think fans of the book Good Omens might not necessarily like this new season um, because it does feel like pure fanfic. This new season feels like it's pretty much a spin-off that is specifically about Aziraphale and Crowley's relationship. Um, so if you are a book purist, I think you will be disappointed in this season. But if you loved their relationship in the first season of the TV show, this is the season for you. It, everything about it feels so campy and fan servicey, and that is literally all I wanted from this season. So that is my recommendation. If you want to have a fun uh, and much like a muck time, kind of homoerotic time. I give Good Omens season two a try. Fantastic! Thank you very much. Yes, this is this is definitely the uh, Star Trek podcast to come for if you're looking for homoeroticism. Um, yes. Lovely, excellent. Um, <laughs> Kev, what have you got for us this week? Um, I'm going to recommend uh, a film from Korean director Park Chan Wook called Lady Vengeance. Uh, you may have Park Chan-wook recently. He had the big hits, The Handmaiden and Decision to Leave. Uh, I guess big hits in the art house sphere, not really box office hits. They're probably in Korea. Um, but he is best known for his film Old Boy, which is like a, the very nasty, like 2003 thriller. Um, and that's part of, you may know, his Vengeance trilogy, where it preceded by Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. And I'm not going on either of those movies because I find both movies like very stylishly directed, and very well thought through, but just a little too, like, like, I like them, but a little too dark and depressing and not very deep in character for my taste. But the third film in that loose, not connected trilogy, not story connected, at least, trilogy is Lady Vengeance. And that is what I'm here to recommend. My new, as I've recently watched a few weeks ago, my new favorite film he's done, uh, Lady Vengeance like old boy and sympathy also deals with very dark subject matter but the difference is it has such a depth to the characters in it uh i think the main character uh i'm just trying to look at the actor but she is incredible it's an amazing performance and also it's just there's so much depth more depth to her than just sort of the like little chess pieces being moved around in his previous two movies uh, it's played by a uh, Lee Young A. Lee Young. I hope. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If that's a mispronunciation. I tried my best, but she is. A, she is very famous career at the time, I think, and she was very good in this movie. Um, and it's just such a more emotional story. It's even more like Salish director with more fun ideas than the last two, and it has a very dark ending especially if you get nervous around like bad things happening to children i would caution you away from this movie but if you can stomach that it just it builds to such an amazing emotional catharsis i guess say a little bit what it's about it's about a woman who is uh committed confessed to a crime and then is let go of prison and has a plan when she's out of prison and i guess i don't want to say more than that because a lot of the movie is like his other movies very surprise driven and like you don't know what's happening next. And as soon as you think you have a handle on what genre or template it's following, it takes a huge swerve and leaves you stranded. But just the idea of a woman getting out of jail for a crime she ardently confessed to, but was sort of given a pass by the public because she was so young and beautiful looking. Like, that is an interesting hook to start with. And she's planning something. And it's vengeance related, as you can imagine from the title and the name of the trilogy. 
So yeah, highly recommend Lady Vengeance. Um, I think I watched it on Canopy, which if you have a library in the US or anywhere that supports that, but it's probably on some other places as well or rentable. It's really good. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I am going to go for an Apple TV recommendation uh, this time, uh, which is uh, Hijack, starring uh, Idris Elba. Uh, it's a profoundly silly show, um, done with the same real-time conceit as 24. It's daft, all right? It's a silly show, and that's kind of why I love it. Um, it's not in any way uh, uh, like brilliant television, um, but it's just like a really entertaining thriller. Um, Idris Elba is one of those actors, like when he's on, he's amazing. And when he's off, and, and, and it's very much hit and miss as to which he's going to be, uh, you know, things can die. Um, but he's really kind of dialed his charisma back up for this. And it makes a big difference. I think if he wasn't quite as committed to it, the whole series would sort of collapse in upon itself, like a sort of failed dessert um sorry i have no idea where that analogy came from um but it was uh it's just a really fun little show it's it's uh, a good thriller it manages to hold your attention and you know if you're looking for like a bit of like friday night beer and pizza television it hits exactly that kind of that kind of slot. Um, the rest of the cast are really good. Um, for us, uh, Doctor Who fan, it's nice to see Eve Miles is still getting work in there oh. somewhere. Uh, yeah, and um, it's just it's just like it's just like like yeah, good Friday night television when you don't feel like going out to the pub. Um, that's it. That's really as good a, <laughs> as good a recommendation. I'm not really selling this, am I? Just trust me. Watch it. It's fine. And it's Apple TV. You know, Apple TV rarely tie out stuff which is which is bad, even if they're not necessarily successful. Mm -hmm. They're almost always interesting. Apple TV have turned out to be such a great haven for for interesting content, and this is this is uh, this is pretty straightforward by Apple TV standards, I guess. But it's just good. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, there's so much Apple TV I ha am watching and still want to watch. So yeah, I guess I'll add that to the list. Uh, that that also just reminds me that same description. Great Friday TV that's like a little mindless, but um, you. You can. It is also very well made. Is a uh, Silo, which stars Rebecca Ferguson. Like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's a show that I can't like proselytize because it's like so silly and very like it feels very YA, but happens to star full adults. But um, there's a lot of talk of before times and relics and things like that. But it is also just like oh, it's very competently made. Graham Yost is a wonderful showrunner who, for some reason, is running it. And yeah, it's. I don't know, it just this feels of a piece with Hijack where it's like, turn your brain off, just half focus on it, and oh, it's a pretty entertaining time. Excellent. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I very much agree with you in Silo. Like, I, I, it's a really enjoyable show, but I'd have a hard time giving it a full-throated recommendation. Um, anyway, I think we can probably um, tie things off there. Uh, Ellie, is there something you would like to plug? Um, sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ellie wrote that. Um, I've been hyping this on every podcast I've been on for the past like half a year and we haven't done this yet, but at some point my friend and I are planning to do a lockdown over the course of a weekend and write a fake uh, lifetime holiday movie <laughs> or excuse me, Hallmark <laughs> holiday movie. They feel about the same. Um, so if you want to see me do that eventually and descend into madness, follow me on Twitter. That's where we'll be uh, logging what we experienced during that weekend. Um, and you can also hear me occasionally on the podcast Total Massacre, where I have so far talked about aliens and heat 
and RRR. So you can look up those episodes if you want to hear me talk about, uh, you know, more more homoeroticism, I guess. I mean, yeah, with all three of those. They're not really aliens, yeah. but... Yeah, well, in RRR especially. Oh, if yeah. you enjoyed hearing me talk about that topic on this episode, go look up that episode, because that's pretty much all we talk about. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I mean, if that's not a recommendation, I don't know what is. Um, brilliant. <laughs> um, Kev, would you tell people how they can get in touch with us? Sure. Um, yeah, we're on Twitter at Talk Trek to You. Uh, I barely use Twitter these days, but at Max Reba's roadie now, because I don't want people to find me anymore there. I don't want my <laughs> real name on there anymore. Um, but like, it's still probably easy to Google, but whatever. I'm also, I post more on Blue Sky if you happen to have an invite there. Also Max Rebo's roadie. Um, JG's, JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. Uh, I am also frequently on the aforementioned podcast, Total Massacre, Talking Action Movies, and JG's other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, going through the Beatles track by track. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Ellie, thank you very much for returning to the podcast. Yes, thank you so much for having me back, specifically to talk about this episode. Like I said, I've been waiting a full year to talk about Amok Time. And uh, when you get to TNG uh, in like a decade, have please have <laughs> me back to talk about the episode where someone hooks up with the ghost. I'll be looking forward to that for many years. <laughs> I promise, candle ghost sex will very much be uh, will be your pick. I, I can uh, I can I'll put that aside for you right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, fantastic. It's been lovely to have you back. And I think with that, we can probably end things there. Next episode. Uh, yeah, it's a return to gods, uh, which means we are going to be covering who mourns, uh, who mourns, sorry, I've tipped my hand there, haven't <laughs> I? Uh, who mourns for Adonis even, but until then, keep talking.